Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Alan Carl. And before we get to Alan, I have a few things to say. First, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there, see some stories that I've written, some stories that the guests have written. You can see photos of our guests. You can see links to their social media. You can see links to our social media. And that is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We have a Facebook page. Please follow us on all those formats. And on our site, you can also find links to Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts. We're also on Spotify and iHeartRadio, basically anywhere you get your podcasts. So if you are listening on one of those services, please give us a good rating. Give us a thumbs up. Maybe say a few nice things because that boosts our presence and helps more people find the show. So do that. I would appreciate it. If you think you'd be right for the show as a guest, or maybe you know somebody who would be, or you want to ask me some travel questions or just say nice things, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, Alan Carl is a guy I met at friend of the show, Ashley Colburn's wedding. Yes, back in May, our good friend Ashley, who uh, has been on the show a couple times, she got married at her family home down in Fallbrook, California, which is kind of by San Diego. And seated at our table was Alan Carl, whom I'd never met before, but I'm surprised I haven't because surely over the last decade or so, I would have run into him somewhere at some travel event or wherever, or at least in Ashley's orbit, since we were both mutual friends of her. But it turns out Alan is an author, a travel TV host, a public speaker. He does a lot of things. And the short story is he had helped found a company during the whole dot-com tech boom. Worked on that for years. That went away. Worked on some other things in the business and eventually got out. And as we've learned often on this show, there's nothing like travel to help with a life change. Or sometimes it causes a life change or eases the transition to a new life. Whatever it was, back in 2005, Adlin left on a three-year solo journey around the world on a motorcycle, and it changed his life. So after visiting over 30 countries on that three-year journey, he came back and wrote a book, a coffee table travel book called Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. Three years, five continents, one motorcycle. That's a mouthful, but we'll just call it Forks. And when going around promoting the book, he found out he was really promoting travel and he was good at it. So that led to more public speaking and, of course, to even more travel. So you can imagine that a guy who went solo for years around the world on a motorcycle might have a few travel tales to tell. And, of course, he does. Alan is still out there traveling solo on his motorcycle. He also lives down around San Diego. And he's a really interesting guy, and I'm glad we got sat together at a wedding. If you want to know about all things Alan Carl, you can go to worldrider.com. You can follow him at worldrider on Instagram. You can get your copy of the Forks book, and we'll have links to all this stuff on TravelTalesPodcast.com. But a great way to get to know him is to listen to my chat with him. Enjoy my conversation with Alan Carl. Alan Carl, the world rider. Welcome back to America. Hey, it's good to be here. <laughs> What's Where going we, on? So tell me, speaking of riding, I mean, you got your 
your name, I guess your moniker is from you. You ride a motorcycle all over the world and you had just come back from Tijuana. You're in the San Diego area. Yep. Right. So your yeah. bike was in Tijuana. How did this well, work? No, no, actually, I rode my bike. It's just this weekend. I just had a whim on Saturday. Right. We're, um, I'm 40 miles to the uh, the border of Tijuana, which is, by the way, the busiest border crossing in the world. More people cross that than any other border in the world. But I just decided, you know, I'm getting ready to go to Europe because my actual my real motorcycle is sitting in a garage in Athens, Greece right now. And I wanted to just do a little test. You know, it's been so long since we've traveled. This pandemic has changed everything, even for world riding guy like me, (laughs) where I last left my motorcycle after circumnavigating the Black Sea uh, in 2019, preparing to go back and retrieve the bike in 2020. We know where that went. So here I have, I have a surrogate bike here that I used. Actually, I I bought a twin. I mean, like a surrogate to shoot the pilot we did for the, for the uh, travel channel. And I said, well, I need to just get a border crossing experience on my bike before I fly all the way over to Greece. So I (laughs) Saturday morning, I got on the bike. I know a lady who makes wine in the Valle de Guadalupe. It's great stuff going on down there. And I thought I'll just go down there for, to catch up with her. And to just try how I'm going to do with the the border crossing. And I came back on Sunday morning. So it was like a a whim. Okay. So, I mean, it went, I didn't know, like crossing a border from certainly from Mexico. Is it more difficult on on a motorcycle or seems like it'd be easier? Maybe you could snake through a little bit. Yeah, well, certainly any border crossing, it's much easier, uh, particularly if you happen to be like me with the global entry and you go through the century lane and all that. But what it is, is if you've ever ridden through Tijuana and I, you know, I usually will go into the border through Tecate, which is due east by an hour or so. And it's a much more chill border. It's not like that crazy busy one at TJ. So the real thing is crossing into it's not a problem. It's coming back, trying to find that sentry lane. Because the last thing you want to do, even on a motorcycle, is to get caught in, you know, I hate to say it, but the commoner lane. Yeah. (laughs) To to then that can be on a Sunday, a six hour ordeal. Oh my gosh. So so for me, it was not only navigating, and you have to navigate Tijuana traffic. You're on a bike, you're more vulnerable. You know, you know, am I and you're looking at signs trying to maybe is the GPS gonna help me get to the sentry lane? And um, and I missed it at one point. I, I'm on the road and I see a sign ahead of me and it says Otai, which is another border, maybe 10 miles from the Tijuana border, Otai Mesa. And I'm like, no, I can't go to Otai. That's a nightmare. So I you turn it and find my way. And I, yeah, I crossed the border, but it, it can be dicey. Well, what was your bike doing there anyway? No, I rode it there from here, from San okay, Diego. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. 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 It was just like a quick, yeah, I'm going to go for a ride today. You know? <laughs> so, so I rode to Mexico. I mean, most people with motorcycles, they might want to go out to Palomar mountain. Maybe they'll go to right. Laguna, you know, they'll go do the sunrise highway. There's some great like roads in the hills, Eastern of EB San Diego, but no, I'm going to go to Tijuana. So we're talking on June 14th now, and just last week, they just um, released the requirement for a COVID test to get back in the U.S. Was that an issue before from Mexico or was that even a problem? I don't think for that Tijuana border, that was not a problem. I think okay. that was uh, for, for, for the flying land, mostly for the land border. That's for flying mostly. Yeah. OK. All right. So how was Mexico this weekend? So it's pretty good. I went, there's a winery called Valet Girl vino and uh the winemaker is satara perez and she's got a very rootsy grassroots you know there's very fancy you know it's not it's not napa stuff but there's very like you know this is 
really cool, almost, you know, I say mom and pop kind of thing, you know, she's got this thing called the Corcha Rosa, which is like the, the pink cork, if you will, or the red cork. And, um, and her boyfriend, um, who is not so into wine like Sitar is, is really into spirits. And what they started about in the middle of the pandemic is they built a speakeasy in the back of the wine bar. So it's got a door with a peephole and you have to have a password. And there he serves craft cocktails made from spirits that they uh, distill mostly from wine in the region. So there's brandies, there's a cognac, there's things like that. So I got to taste their spirits. Now I I tend to be more of a wine guy, but cool. This is this (laughs) little, you know, uh, it's, it's all under like thatched roofs. It's very cool. There was a live band playing some really good music um in the wine bar portion of it they've got a kitchen they serve pizzas and i just got to hang out with her for uh for the for the day in the evening and uh and then rode back the next morning so it was quite the quite the fun thing have you been down to the valle i have not i have not i have been uh you know i've been uh, tijuana of course but it's been years and i don't really know how far out of tijuana is that that's probably about an hour if that okay um yeah, so it's kind of between Rosarita and Ensenada and then east. And it was funny because we have here in California, you know, the the thing we call June gloom. If you live near the coast, everything yeah. gets sucked in. I mean, it was even felt yesterday like it was misting and raining. So when I rode down there Saturday, I ride down on the coast. There's a there's a toll road that you come out of Tijuana and it takes you down towards Ensenada, Rosarita, Ensenada. And I'm on that road. And it's kind of cold because it's, you know, <laughs> there's no sun. And then when you make that left turn, it's at La Mission, Playa de la Mission is where you turn left to go head into the valley. And, at, you know, just in about two miles, boom, the blue skies, white puffy clouds, the nice heat of the sun on your face. Well, what, yeah, when I was working a ship, I, I think I got off and, you know, we stopped in Ensenada. So I was, I took a, I think I did a tequila tour out of there, but not a winery. So how far out of Ensenada would it be? Yeah, you you be you could be at the in the Valle in twenty minutes from Ensenada. Oh yeah, yeah. Hmm, maybe north. I did go there. <laughs> you, you might. Have. And, but the thing is, this is this is kind of a new thing. I mean, there's a few old school people who've been making wine there. Like El Chetto is a really big, you know, more of a factory wine, if you will. They, they they make you know certainly some some boutique or more wines. But this whole thing, I think, has emerged in in the last. I want to say ten years. It's become super popular where you've got these crazy boutique hotels you've got michelin star restaurants um you've got uh really good high caliber wines uh happening there and you know because people when you think of that exactly what do you think about mexico you think about tacos and tequila (laughs) and and maybe some tamales Mm -hmm. the full alliteration there but anyway but wine and you know no, no rice and beans. What are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> talk about that travel channel pilot. I didn't know anything about this. What is, oh. what is this thing you shot? So I shot a show called the food explorer and actually we shot it in Baja because we were like, it's, it's interesting. The whole process of getting a, a television show considered for going to series, as we like to say, they'll do a pilot. Actually, before there's a pilot, there's a presentation that they may commission you to do, which you say, this is kind of what it is. It's maybe a 10 minute thing. And then if they like that, they will commission you and give you some cash and say, go ahead and fill the pilot. And then they'll, some of these pilots that they pay for never air. I mean, there's tons of things, but mine actually aired 
in 2018 in March. And what it was, uh, I filmed it in Baja. And my whole point was to try to show a different side of the tacos and tequila thing I just mentioned is to try to show a different side of Mexico that people don't know about. There's a lady breeding these very rare horses down in the Valle de Guadalupe on top of that. So, and she has a winery as well. And you can get a horse and ride through vineyards and, you know, do this kind of thing. But um, so, so my, my pilot called the food explorer March, 2018 um, featured the origin story of the Caesar salad. A lot of people don't know that you say, where do you think the Caesar salad was invented? And they'll say, Oh, Rome or. (laughs) I knew it was Mexico. I thought it was a guy in Acapulco or something. Yes, it was a it was a a, a place in Tijuana. Okay, and and it's a great story. And I I filmed there with the chef. There's a, a very famous. Uh, I don't know whether you know. I, my, Mexico doesn't officially have. Um, maybe they do. I, I I shouldn't speak out that I don't know. But he's a very famous chef. His family owns lots of restaurants called Javier Placencia, and his family owns. Um, this uh, restaurant where that in the 1930s. Um, this Caesar salad was invented by the the chef there. And I also did the origin story of the Margarita. And there are two places. There's Hussong's, famous Hussong's Cantina in Ensenada. And then there's another place. And and um, it, it, its name is escaping me right now, but I did, <laughs> I did the show there. Yeah, you got to watch the show. Um, and we talked, we kind of did a battle. I went to both of those places, filmed in both locations and said, okay, who really invented? And what's the story? And then I went to a Lucha Libre event. And then there is in Tijuana, there is this amazing place where chefs, very creative young chefs who may have a barrier of uh, at least for financing to open their own restaurant. They've created almost like a food park, but they're all food trucks, but they're stationary. You know, they don't leave. So now it's a place and there's a there's a craft brewery in there as well. And there's a winery that has set up a tasting room in there. And then all of these individual chefs that um, are showing their culinary skills, again, going beyond just the tacos. And you can go there and just like you would at a food court, you know, in a in a mall or something like that, except these are all, you know, high level cuisine, but but inexpensive and in this cool, neat vibe. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So, and when it aired, you must have been pretty excited about it. But then, I, you know, I've been on the end of this too, and, and uh, yeah, I've, you know, I've been in TV a long time. And then there's that excitement, and then you wait for that call, and you're like, okay, how many more episodes you buying? And they're like, exactly. Ooh. So this you're is lucky. The... You're lucky the pilot aired. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am. I'm, I was like, wow, that aired. So, so here's the thing, Mike. You're gonna appreciate this. This is where I got. <laughs> I got totally you know, maybe a bit rammed. So, you know, there are development execs that kind of are responsible for giving you notes on all the edits and as you're you know, making this thing so that it fits their brand in terms of their look on the television. So I had three development execs working uh, with my production company and me on this show. The week that it aired, for those of you who don't know, um, Food Network, HGTV, Travel Channel, Cooking Channel were all owned by Scripps Network. Scripps out of Knoxville. Out of I've Knoxville. Done, I've done numerous shows for them. Well, uh, in 2017, um, Discovery Networks agreed to buy them and create like a merger. And it had to go through FDA, uh, uh, not FDA, but uh, FCC approval and all the, the government 
regulations. And then there's all the logistics of signing papers and all that. Well, the deal closed the week my pilot aired. All of those development execs that worked on my show were immediately transferred to the uh, Food Network. So all of a sudden, I've got an orphaned show with nobody knowing. In fact, months later, when we finally got another meeting with some new people on the travel side, they said, Alan, who food explorer? What was that? Nobody knew about it. So sadly, um, and and then it's funny because the travel channel, if you've looked at it lately, it's all uh, ghost hunters and paranormal stuff. I don't know what happened to that. It's got nothing to do with travel. Yeah, exactly. Nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah. What is your background? What was your background? Were you from a performing background or were you a journalist or? No, I, I was a, um, a brand marketing guy, uh, strategy advertising. I ran a uh, digital agency, one of the first ones in Orange County, California, and grew it, ended up merging, doing all kinds of things, trying to hit a home run, you know, as we always do as an entrepreneur, you know, hoping that you have a, a great exit strategy that is easily executed and you walk away and, you know, you're a multimillionaire. Well, you know, we had all the plans in place and then in... Um, in that digital world in the early 2000s, when we had what people call now the dot bomb, right? Yeah. <laughs> so valuation- I, remember those, I remember those days too. Those too, right. So the valuations of that, um, of that, of our space, of our kinds of people, you know, we were building front end and back end internet uh, uh, for large company. We worked with HP. We did some work with eBay, Apple. We, we did things. These weren't the big top level projects, but a lot of, uh, of back level things. The company was originally, I started Priscom. And then when we did, I did this thing called a roll up. I, I, I worked with some other partners and we did a simultaneous merger initially of, of three or five agencies from in different locations. So we, we took our small little pies. I was in Cal, I was in Orange County. We had one in Sacramento, one in Boise, one in Seattle. And all of us came together and merged and created a new company called Wirestone. And our whole thing was we were going to be like, you know, Razorfish, if you remember some of these things, or agency.com back in the day. So you you were doing digital like ads and and marketing stuff? Building building back and front end sites, you know, and and the mechanics behind it. We even had our Sacramento office did a lot of work with the, the government and some large uh, medical, you know, as people were starting to get things online, this is 2000, 2001, you know, uh, the internet wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today, but it was getting to that point because everybody was like the gold rush, you know, yeah. in that time. And everybody was getting, going public and making millions of dollars with crazy, stupid evaluations, uh, valuations rather. And um, anyway, but we were burning through a lot of cash because we created this a bit of a monster that we needed to keep feeding and we needed cash. And after the the crash, it was very difficult for anyone to get any money, but somehow we managed to convince a private equity firm to invest in Wirestone. And the private equity firm, of course, gave all of us a pretty good haircut over time. You know, I wish I knew then what I know now about Mm -hmm. how things work. I thought I had a pretty ironclad employment agreement, but long story short is what I did is, and we, we had a big meeting of this group of people uh, that were, we had now merged 13. We'd added now another seven or eight companies to come into our, our thing. Our whole idea was let's just keep making a bigger pie. Our, our, our slice might get a little smaller, but we're ending up 
of with a piece of a bigger one, right? That was the idea. So we have this big strategy meeting, September 10th, 11th, and 12th, 2001. 9-11 happens, right? Because that's 9-11. Yep. And I wake up that morning and I'm like with all these people and the private equity people were there. And I just had this, this, this rot gut thing in my stomach, just eating at me. And I, you know, we stayed there in Vegas, eventually found our way to get out of there. Um, all of the various, you know, VPs we had, you know, we had, we had too many, uh, too many chiefs, not enough Indians in the end, because <laughs> we merged with all these people and all of them were owners and entrepreneurs and everybody was getting a big salary. And I got home, Mike, and I wrote my resignation letter. You know, and this is a company I founded, I branded, I named it. You know, you know, I, I own the domain. And um, it wasn't long after, a few years later, after I was spinning my wheels trying to do, you know, another startup, I decided to hop on my motorcycle and travel the world in what ended up being a three-year trip through 35 countries on five continents, about 62,000 miles by the time I finally got back to the U.S. And the same motorcycle all the way. The, the, uh, the, the private equity firm tried to sue me for breach of contract, you know, for uh, leaving the company. But they used to always say, we're going to get you to the finish line. <laughs> I always <laughs> like that. I always like, it. don't worry to all of us. We're going to get you to the finish line. So this was in <clears throat> early 2000, you can imagine. Well, in 2018, may have been 2017 or 2018. And I owned a little bit of the stock. It was not a public company, but but it had been diluted because they kept issuing more and more. So all of us got in. The, and we were offered the ability. We had in our contract. This is where I was saying we had the ability in our contract to 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 maintain our pro rata share. Like if I owned two percent, as they issue stock, they say, "Sure, you can keep. You can buy it." I'm like, "Yeah, I can buy up to my two percent. I'm not going <laughs> to buy." You know. So 2017. They finally, now this is 16 years later, the private equity firm did get sorted to the finish line. The company was acquired by Accenture in 2017. So that's the long run of that. But so in the, in the meantime, while my, all my you know, co-workers, co-VPs who stayed with the company, you know, were still there 16 years later, by the time I was 16 years later. I think I'd been up to about 70 countries on that motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> but you still had the 2% of the... I didn't have 2%. No, I had very little. So I, I, I like to say the amount that I ended up getting in that merger was um, enough to you know get a nice nice new latest phone and maybe a laptop and, uh, <laughs> and a few other tech gadgets, as it were. But no, it wasn't, wasn't a home run. But How'd uh, you know enough to, to start... I mean, did, pitching to the travel channel and who did you have, who were your connections that you could even get in the room to pitch them? Yeah. So here's what I did is in 20, after I returned from that trip, uh, I started speaking, telling stories. So I was, uh, uh, you know, a keynote speaker and through just contacts I had in business, I was able to get some pretty good gigs. So my credentials were were pretty good, even though I'd never really you know, I, I spoke as a marketing guy at mm -hmm. events, but that was more to pimp my business, right? The, the services I sold. Now I'm there to get paid as a keynote speaker to inspire people to, you know, embrace change, you know, 
tackle fear and uh, step out to their comfort zone and things like that, like I did to go on a, on a trip. So I wrote a book. That you happen to have handy. It's Forks. called Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine and Connection. It's a hardcover coffee table book filled with photographs. And did you take all the photos? I took all the photos except the hero shots of the years. Here's what it is. It covers 35 countries. It covers that three-year trip. And each of those, there's 35 chapters, each country I, I write about. And at the end of the chapter, there's a recipe, usually the national dish, that particular country. Like, what do those people cook? Not the fancy, you know, Michelin or... Right, right. Uh, like like in, um, in uh, this is Chipo Wazoo. It's a Paraguayan dish. It's, it's made of eggs and onions and cheese. And, and it's like... <laughs> Everybody eats that there. You know, if you go to Costa Rica, it's a, a pinto gallo, um, lomo sotado in, in Oh, lomo in sotado in Peru. Yeah, yeah, I had a lot of that. And they had, yeah. did you have the ceviche? Yes, in Peru? yes ceviche oh, in Peru. And that. in Ecuador, too. Yes, you sure. have to have that. Yeah. So what happened is the book came out, Mike, and, um, and I got on Good Morning America. So that was really a good boost. And so people started seeing me, and I would get calls emails, inquiries from people who want to write a, you know, my a screenplay about my trip. Some people <laughs> want to do a TV show. Other people, you know, would like want me to be on their podcast and share these stories. So, so I ended up um, filming a, a production company in Canada engaged me to film a show in China and I'm not going to go deep in it. it. It It's a failed project that, well, it's not failed because we're resurrecting it right now, but it never did get aired. But what happened is we shot a lot of footage there. And then I went with the production company after that kind of collapsed. I went to Iceland. I was ready to do that. I was going to go do Scandinavia on the bike. And I convinced the production company, at least part of some of them who worked at that production company to come with me to Iceland and film me as I rode my motorcycle around Iceland. And then what we did is we put together this sizzle reel and we went to an event called um, real screen, which is a, what they call unscripted. It's like a, a event where all the executives from all these TV networks and go and you, you know, They'll they're there. You can go and meet people and hobnob in the hallways and try to figure out. So I ended up showing the sizzle around to a handful of people. And, and somehow then that gets to somebody. And the long story short, there's a there's a production company out of Nashville who, you know, just like, yeah, I mean, it's so funny. I'll never forget. He's like, Alan, Alan, this this is crazy. You, you are a national treasure. We need to do a show. You know, it's yeah. like, So, you know, it's the TV world. But anyway, they had, had they had already pitched and had some successful shows with scripts. So they already had an, a relationship there. They walked my sizzle in there okay, and, and were able to get the deal. So what years were you on this motorcycle trip? So 2016 to 19? Or? So, I mean, I've done. Uh, so the very first uh, three year trip was in, two, you know, basically think of it as 2005 to 2009. Okay. okay. Then I came back, started speaking, wrote the book. After I published the book, I went to China, rode around China. We were filming. Then I went to Iceland. And so every year since, uh, say, 2016, 2015, 2016, I've been spending my motorcycle, eventually made its way to Europe. And I have traveled all over Scandinavia, the Baltics, Eastern Europe, 
all the way out to the Caucasus, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and, and that. And um, and I continue to do that until 2019 when the world stopped, you know, or yeah. at least in <laughs> 2020. So right now I count, I think, 82 countries that I've been to on that motorcycle. But the book and the first that first real trip, which was the real long trip, I'm not going to do three years all at once again. I'm yeah. now doing I'm doing three months and then I come back. <laughs> And, um, and do that, but I always try to go somewhere new. So I'm leaving to go to Athens and get, get back to my motorcycle that I haven't seen in three years. I left, <laughs> I left it there in October, 2019 after going through all those countries. And I'm going to, I'm not sure exactly what the plan is, but I'm definitely, I want to go to Cyprus. <clears throat> I want to go to Malta, maybe go over to Sicily and take the ferry over to Tunisia so I can hit some Northern Africa stuff. And, um, but I'll do, you know, this time I, I don't think I'll have three months because uh, here we are already mid-June, but I'll do I'll do at least two. No, that's great. So I imagine the first it sounds like that first trip what the book was based on was mostly South America and Central America. South America, Central America, Africa and the Middle East. Ooh, all right. So I, so I did hit, you know, I went from Cape Town to Cairo, crossed over Sinai, went to Jordan and Israel, Syria. I was like there about a year before Arab Spring. And mm. I got and then into Turkey, um, touched, straddled the border of Lebanon. I actually can't I don't count that as a country yet because you got to you got to you can't just, you know, like these people who say they switched planes in uh, Qatar. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't count airport exchanges as no. visiting. No way. You have, you have to have a you have to have a transaction and you yeah. have to have a, a stay overnight. Yeah, at least. Yeah. At leave least. the airport. At least. Yeah. <laughs> leave the airport. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So um, anything. I mean, was there an agenda? I mean, did you have it mapped out or was it like, take it as it comes? I'm just going to, you know, fly by the seat of your pants here. Yeah, pretty much fly by the seat of my pants. I, I mean, I had I had a couple things I wanted to do for me. You know, I'm a, I'm a real people person. My whole thing is that's why the book is culture, cuisine and connection. I know that. And it was at a time where America's Americans, many Americans, not not all had a bit of insecurity because uh, whether they uh, they had a complex because we were in the Middle East having a war and we've had, had a guilty syndrome or it was guilty because in these impoverished countries, we have such a better lifestyle than they have. And therefore uh, there, and I, I wanted to go and, and say, highlight the beauty of the world through its people, which is why my book is not about me, 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 me. It's all about um, people I met uh, and stories about them, about strangers who, who become, uh, you know, come friends, you know, um, you know, everyone. So I'm not like one of these people who hides behind a, you know, with a long telephoto lens and take a picture of the guy that doesn't really looks like he comes from another world. No, I'm over there. Hey, dude, nice, <laughs> nice hat. You know, and I try to learn some of the language and, and that. So my, my goal was to go and meet people, write about them. I didn't necessarily have the idea of the book until I got back, but that, that just evolved. And I also wanted to go to as many UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Um, and the UNESCO World Heritage uh, is all about preserving our natural resources, our historical and cultural places of importance. But at the same time, offering an opportunity for those, for those, those sites that are in impoverished countries to 
to grow, but not let the over tourism, but also not like try to freeze them in time, you know? So we, everybody needs to evolve. That's how we grow. Right. And, and I wanted to share some of those stories. So I, I yeah, that, <laughs> that was it. How do uh, governments and police and everybody else take to this uh, lone American driving through their cities and countries? You know, it's, it's interesting because border crossing stories sometimes can be the most dramatic and the most like insane because everybody is, you know, if you're in like Egypt, for example, everybody's got their hand out for bakshish or they're in this Latin American, they want propina, you know, basically tips or, you know, bribes, if you will. Um, I, I, I got to tell you that uh, for the most part, people look at me, look at the motorcycle, whether they're even cops will come up and they'll go, how much does it cost? How fast does it go? And, um, you know, where are you from? But, you know, these, these are the usual questions. Where are you from? Where are you going? How fast is it? How much does it cost? And I never like to talk about money in these places. So my stock answer, I said, sorry, I'm not selling it. You know? mm. So it just kind of puts them at the defensive and how fast it goes. Cause they had all, you know, in a lot of these places, this is a very big motorcycle, even though there are mine says 650 CCs, the adventure bikes that have become kind of trendy now in this business are 1200 or 1250 CCs. So even bigger, but still compared to a, a cop in Panama, that's on a 250, this thing's a giant, right? And there is a funny story. I can say that, um, that I was in Panama and I was following these, I was in a line of cars on a two lane road and there's one car, uh, there's like five cars in front of me and the one car in the very front that was, everyone was going really slow. And the one that was, was going really slow had two different size tires on the back. Okay. So it was like a little cockeyed like this. It had, I don't know, all kinds of junk in the, it was a station wagon kind of a car, like a Japanese style. And then chairs and everything and even right on the top a cage with a chicken in it you know so they we always like to say chicken buses this was Mm -hmm. a chicken car and one by one the car the five cars ahead of me you know as it gets clear around they pass this chicken car and finally it comes to me and it's my turn because now it's just me and the chicken car everybody else is gone i pass the car And then the next, about two minutes later, I looked at my peripheral vision. I looked to the left and there is a cop on like a 250 CC motorcycle. He's got a little red light on a stanchion connected to the back and it's turning like this. And I look over at him and he kind of goes like this. And I just pointing. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And and so what I do is I wave back. (laughs) Right. And he's like pointing at me again. And I wave back and then he makes a very forceful point with his finger. And I'm like, okay, he wants me to come on the side of the road. He speaks no English. I speak some Spanish, pulls out a pad of paper. He draws a picture of what is a two lane road with a line down the middle. And he draws a picture of my line, my car. I mean, my motorcycle passing the chicken car, crossing the line. He says, cruce la linea doble, which means you've crossed, crossed the double, the double line. line. Yeah. And, um, and I said, wait a minute. What about all those cars that passed ahead of me? Why aren't you going after them? Well, I'm the gringo, right? So, you know, he doesn't pull those guys over. So we go on the road and he, he, he asked for my passport and driver's license, international driver's license. And um, he's, he's holding on to that. And uh, he says, well, I'm afraid we're going to have to go down to 
the station and take care of this. And uh, at this point, he's, he's knows, he knows exactly what I'm going to, most people in my tourist thing are going to say is, oh, no, can't we settle this right here? Right? Yeah. So I say, oh, fantastico. Vamos. <laughs> and it's the last thing he wants to hear because he doesn't really want to go to the station. No, you know, of course not. He doesn't want to do paperwork. He's yeah, Exactly. He's looking for a bribe. And and then he he, he kind of gets a little frustrated and he says no. And then he writes something on his pad uh, with a dollar sign. Like in, in Panama, they actually use real dollars. They've uh, that's their currency, U.S. dollars. They've got yeah. their own coins, the Balboas, but the but the paper money is uh, is, is U.S. currency. And um, he puts down. He's like. Like he he kind of lifts his hands up in the air, waves his head back, and says, "Come on, give me some money, and I'll let you go." And I know in my pocket, all I have, Mike, is a twenty dollar bill. <laughs> and I know that that three dollars or a fiver would get me out of this predicament. And by the way, I never never bribe. I never bribe, but I did actually break the law here, apparently, right? So I did cross the line. So it's not a bribe. But the last thing I want to do is give him $20 when I know he'd accept five. So <laughs> It's the principle of it. It's the principle, right. So how do you ask for change from a bribe from a Latin American <laughs> police officer? Cambio? So, cambio, yeah, exactly. So I ask, I says, look, all I have is $20. And by the way, I'm running out of gas and I don't have any money uh, other than this. And I need to buy gas. And can you give me some change? Cambio. He looks at my bike and then he looks at his and he looks at me and he says, you have uh, basically he gestures for a gas can. And I do have these spare, um, you know, they're about one and a half liter uh, cans that I'll fill when I go into an area where I know I might be I'm a hard time finding a gas station. So he grabs the gas cans from me, goes over to his motorcycle, disconnects the fuel line. And drains gas from his motorcycle into my cans and hands them to me. <laughs> you know, at that point, I'm beat. <laughs> right, beat. right. <laughs> Here's your 20. Boom. Take it. Take it. That so, was an expensive liter of gas. That was a very expensive liter of gas. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So oh have, have you ever gotten um, any accidents, any uh, any injuries or anything like that in any countries? 200 dirt mile dirt road. That leads from San Luis Potosí in Bolivia, which is the highest city in the world, by the way, and the Salar de Ayuni, which is the uh, the largest salt flat in the world. It's the, the Salar de Ayuni is the desert, you know, that's the Uyuni Desert, salt flat desert. And um, on that road, which is barren, there's like no towns in between Potosí and Uyuni. It's about 200 miles or so. And there are a few little settlements and people are doing agriculture and intending to llamas up in those hills. You see them as you're traveling through. It's a beautiful ride. But I, the one settlement where the buses come and stop and pick everybody up to take them to market, either in Potosi or into Uyuni, um, it had rained the day before. So it was really muddy and rutted. And I come into that town going very slow and it's muddy and I'm on the motorcycle and 
my motorcycle starts sliding and slipping and I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Then the rear tire sweeps out from underneath me. I mean, literally I look and it's next to me on the right and I fall into the mud and my motorcycle, which weighs about 400 pounds. And I'm carrying about 200 pounds of all my earthly belongings. It comes and crashes down on top of me. (sighs) And then I try to get out from under the bike, but my leg is stuck underneath my panniers. I've got these aluminum panniers like saddlebags. And then I have this sense, this feeling, and I know it. My leg is broken, crushed. And it's a hell of a long story to try to figure out how do you get out of this middle of nowhere in the Andes? I'm sitting at about 14,000 feet, by the way, because that salt flat's not only the largest in the world, it's the highest in the world, not far from the highest city in the world. 12 hours later, I finally get, you know, managed to get somebody to get me moved to a hospital in Potosi. My motorcycle stays in Uyuni, I mean, in, in this little town, which is called Tika Tika, by the way. And there I am, and they x-ray me, and sure enough, my leg is broken in three places, fib-tib. Mm-hmm. And then they give me um, some medicine for my pain, but I've got to pay for it first. Everything, even the x-ray, before they do it, you've got to pay them in the, in the Bolivian pesos or whatever they are. And the pills, they give me the strongest they've got for pain. And they tell me it's like a high dose of ibuprofen. And it's at that point, Mike, I feel like here I am in the largest, you know, cocaine producing country, perhaps in the world. (laughs) And all they can give me for pain is Advil. Yeah. (laughs) The the best they could do. That's the best they could do. Man, surely there's marching powder. Somewhere. There's gotta be some marching powder somewhere. So how long were you, uh, did they, how long were you laid up there? So I was there like three days because I did have uh, med, you know, here's a plug for med jet assist, you know, one of those medical uh, evacuation insurance companies, mm-hmm. if you're riding on a motorcycle and they, they had a pretty much were challenged by the way, to get me out of there, but it took three days it, as the highest city in the world. It had had a new airport. They just built it. It was only a year old, except it'd never been open because number one, too high in the dandies. It's very difficult to, let take off and land. The air is very thin, as you know. And the people who live in Potosi are very poor. They can't afford airline tickets. They go by bus anywhere. But somehow my Medjet gets a little, you know, six-seater Cessna. And the, the pilot told me that he had made two attempts to land and he was going to go back to La Paz, which is where they had found him, which is the capital. Or, you know, mm-hmm. it's one of the there's actually two capitals in Bolivia. It's crazy. But anyway. He decided to do a circle round. It was all socked in. He couldn't, there's the clouds everywhere. He couldn't, couldn't land. But then he did one last loop and he landed. So I, I get taken to the airport. It's hilarious. It's a ghost town. There's nobody there. And I'm in this truck that's acting as an ambulance. I'm on a gurney in the back. And we get to the gate, Baron, nobody there. Um, we wait for like 40 minutes. And finally, a guy on a bicycle starts pedaling on the other side. He's, he's in the, in the airport grounds and he's, and he's waving a key and he's like gesturing with his hand. I'm coming, I'm coming. And he lets us in. And then it turns out that this guy, not only is airport security, he's immigration, he's customs, he's the air traffic controller, and he's the gate agent. And he had, he came with a key to open the airport for you. Yes. And then just as, as we're opening, we're sitting there and that little Cessna lands and, um, and I get taken three flights later and 20 hours. I'm back in Newport Beach, California, where the, the good old Dr. Chang, as it were, 
put the pieces of my leg back together. Oh, gosh. And um, about six, seven months later, I finally did return. And, and I had managed to find somebody to go get the motorcycle and store it in a secure location in Potosi. Wow. And all, all my friends said, no, there's no way your bike is not going to be there. That's gone. It's, it's done. gone. You're done. But sure enough, I, um, uh, I, I managed. So, yeah, I did, did have that um, injury. That was a broken leg. That's a pretty big one. That's it's big. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. It's scary. And, you know, I didn't really want to put my faith in the Bolivian medical system. No. So no. that's why I had the med, you know, it's best to go out. So they, they put, I've got like four screws and a rod in that leg. And well, if you know, you're, yeah, I mean, if you're driving a motorcycle anyway, anywhere around the world, I, I would, you know, we always talk about, you know, we've done whole shows on travel insurance here, um, you know, from both sides of the fence. But I mean, if you're engaging in an activity like, you know, motorcycle riding. Yeah. Motorcycle that's not riding, a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. Mountain climbing Skiing or anything, yes. <laughs> yeah, anything like that. Whitewater rafting. If, if, if you're just on the, um, you know, on the cathedral tour, you know, you're probably okay. <laughs> what would, what would the, uh, like if you had to pay cash for everything down and well, you probably had to pay them in the Bolivian hospital. How much was it? The, re- the, uh, the x-ray was, uh, 275. Oh, wow. And, more than I thought it would be. Yeah. And the, um, and the 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 Advil was like two dollars. Hmm. Yeah, right. so it was you know it was it was cheap, still and, cheaper than here. Yeah, and it's funny because um, I, I you know I as I'm being a long term traveler, when I got to Buenos Aires, you know I thought okay, it's probably the most western, other than Santiago, I'd been in there, but yeah. most western in in since my travels. So I decided to go get my blood work done. You know, you, you know, make sure check on your cholesterol, do your lipid panel, and make sure everything's okay. And, you know, here we get the blood work. I don't know, whatever it is. It'll be a three or $400 tab to do a yeah. pa- panel. In Argentina, man, it was $12 to do my complete <laughs> panel. And, you know, that's when you realize that the healthcare system, there's, there's, there's big gaps. It just makes no yeah. sense. Well, yeah, our know. system is, uh, it's ridiculous. It's yeah. ridiculous. So any, um, any food poisonings with all this stuff you've been eating around the world? No, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend yesterday about, you know, how many people did you get COVID, Mike? No, yeah, you, you've on, dodged it. But I am yeah. getting on a cruise on uh, Saturday. So, so, so you could, I, I will have, yeah, I have to test myself to get on. I'll be tested a bunch this week. So, hope you just didn't jinx it. No, but the reason I ask is because, uh, I mean, a lot of people have that, and I've managed to dodge it. I, I'm sure I've been exposed somewhere. I mean, I'm careful. I do masks and do right. all these things, but, you know, you know, we're all letting our guard down now. Sure. And um, I think that that eating all the weird food over the weird does build some immunity and having traveled <laughs> so much. It must be that that's why you haven't as well with all your travels. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I got, you know, it's funny. The um, only place I got food poisoning twice in three years. Once was from buying something at the airport in um, in Lima. You know, I'd gone to the airport and a day later, I was just, you know, it wasn't bad. It was like a one day. It was like a 24 hour yeah. food poisoning. But where it really got me is, in, and again, in a, in a westernized country, this is in South Africa. I was somewhere along the garden route near um, uh, George. Mm-hmm. And I had eaten at a, at a restaurant that was pretty you know, it's clean. I mean, it was, there's, you look at this and it was a little more a reputable, reputable place. <laughs> and I, and I, I forget what I ordered because the food was good, but I, the dessert kind of something was weird for me about the dessert. And 
everybody says, oh, I wasn't the dessert. You know, what did you eat? And I, I, I can't recall, but man, I was curled up both ends for three days. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I finally could walk to the pharmacy, he's like, well, it's not nothing really we can do. You just got to let it go through your system, you know? Right. Um, so, but, you know, I've eaten, you know, beetles, caterpillars. Yeah, I'm the same way. But I'm like the last, the, the most sick I just got was when I worked a cruise in, over the holidays. I got norovirus twice, which sounds, it's very similar to what you have. We just call it stomach flu. But that's what it is. That's what cruise ships are, you know, before COVID. That's, that was what the bad press they used to get when people used to get sick on cruise ships. That's what it is. And it's, you know, uh, it goes around quick. And we just yeah. call it stomach flu, but it's really norovirus. And it comes from like, you know, people not washing their hands and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. You know, and food or the, or the cook not washing their hands or whatever it was. But yeah, it took me down, man. And I have a, you know, a same thing, strong constitution, but whew, that was a, that was a rough one. Wow. And that was recent. Wow. That, yeah. was, that was in January oh. when they're so careful of everything. And with COVID, I mean, everything's wiped down. Everything's, you know, I just, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Stuff. Yeah. There's, you never know. You just never know. So what's left for, uh, I, you know, I try not to overuse the term bucket list, but yeah. where, where have you been dying to get to and just haven't made it yet? Yeah. You know, Madagascar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, really. It's, it's, I've, it's been on my, since I was like 19, I just, I just had this fascination. And when I was in, you know, uh, Zambia or in, in Tanzania, um, you know, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm that close, you know, I'm kind of that close, but um, timing just wasn't with me on that point. You know, I, wa I want to go with the motorcycle if possible. Um, but Madagascar, as well as there's, I got this fascination with M's Myanmar. Myanmar is on my list. Yeah. And I and worry that one of those that we may have missed the window on that yeah. one, you know, it was open, it, you know, it was closed for so long. And then there was that little window when you could go. And now it seems to be shut down again. So it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Morocco, you know. Uh, As, uh, me too. I can't believe you haven't been there since you were riding yeah. all over there. Yeah. Yeah. I was mostly in the um, Eastern Africa, though. And yeah. Else Egypt. I mean, I, I went to Sudan, you know, like, like uh, who goes to Sudan? It would mean Morocco would be a little better or Benin and Togo, <laughs> um, Cameroon. I want to go to all those places. But no. So Morocco is another M. And then I mentioned before this summer, I'm going to get to Malta. You know, there's another M, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I've been to Macedonia, Montenegro, <laughs> Mauritius, <laughs> the Maldives. Mauritius, the Maldives, right? These are all places on the Miami list. I mean, yeah. what what? What letter has got more country names than anything? It's got to be M. I mean, I, I... <laughs> there's an answer to that somewhere. If somewhere. only there was a computer or something, we could look that up. Yeah, we could just somehow find somebody who'd do the research for us. I mean, well, when you got a this bike crosses oceans, how do you usually do it? Do you ship it? Do you can, it's can you do it by plane? Yeah, I've had it air freighted. Um, I've had it air freighted once from Buenos Aires to South Africa. Then it went when it finally came back to the U.S. And it came on a boat from a port in Turkey, and when I shipped it to China, it went on a boat. Um, so, and they also shipped it because you know the end of Panama. There's the thing called the Darien Gap that connects Central America with South America. It's part of the country of Colombia, 
I mean, uh, Panama that connects to Colombia. Yeah. And it's, it's a very rural, it's a drug running area. And it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's like national forest or so national park or something. Yeah. So really no way to go through there. There, there is a guy, a motorcyclist. You did it back in the eighties, Helga Pedersen. He actually managed to get through there, putting it on canoes and things, but I did put it on a boat. I mean, not a boat, rather, a um, an airplane, 40 minute ride from Panama city to Bogota. And okay. that's how I got it to into South America. And, uh, and it was on a, um, a train in Sudan because going, <laughs> going through the desert, the, the, uh, it, it, it's a hundred plus degree weather and there's no roads. It's now they've built a road, by the way, since I was there, they've built a road to a place called Wadi Halfa, which is the, uh, at the southernmost part of Lake Nasser from Egypt. And it's how I took a, a ferry boat from Wadi Halfa to Aswan there in Southern Egypt. Wow. And did, um, well, I mean, when, what year were you in Sudan? Sudan, I was there in, um, 2008. Okay. So it was South Sudan didn't even exist. I don't know. It was, it was, it was, they were fighting there and I was told just to avoid that area. But, um, and, and by the way, Americans can't get a visa to go into Sudan. And everybody was surprised. I, I, I was, you know, we were on all the, the Facebookers and all that. Everybody talks like some people were were in um, in Egypt applying to get a Sudanese visa. Americans, there was even somebody in Italy who was on the forums. And I managed to convince the embassy in in Addis Ababa. Yeah, was it? Ad- yeah, it was Addis. In Addis Ababa, the Sudanese embassy to give me a transit visa, which meant I had to have seven day, I could only stay in Sudan for seven days. Now, if you look at the map, Sudan is the largest country in all of Africa in terms of square miles. So I'm getting seven days to cross the largest country. And by the way, that ferry that goes to Aswan from Wadi Alpha leaves once a week, only once a week. <laughs> so you got to, I got to think, I got to cross the border to give me maximum number of days to make sure that I get there. Cause if you end up in Wadi Alpha and you miss it, and you've got an outdated visa. Where's the Sudanese immigration people going to put me? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to like start your visa on the day of the ferry. Exactly. Right. Yes. Oh boy. Oh boy. What a what a nightmare. But what I mean, that must have been fascinating. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. was it? Um, you know, not to be fearful, but was it pretty safe? Or yeah, it was. I I, I never felt. You know, it's funny. I went out and tried. So I took a train part of the way to Wadi Halfa. I, I, I went as far as I could on the road that they had. And then as far as I could on the sand, because it's sand. And, you know, as heavy as my motorcycle is and without, you know, my goal was there are a lot of overland tra- travelers, you know, that whole Cape Town to Cairo route. You know, you get those guys in the Toyota Land Cruisers or the Mercedes four by four big things. And it's a big deal. Like, And I thought. There's a, a place where a lot of Brits, a lot of Sa- uh, South Africans and a lot of people from, you know, the Netherlands and things like that, you know, will end up at this camping park in Khartoum. And I thought everybody says, oh, yeah, go there. You'll find somebody with these four by fours. You can give them your uh, they'll, they'll carry your my panniers, all the heavy weights so that at least I could be a little lighter to go through the sand. And they would travel with me in case I did fall. They could help me get the bike up again in sand. It's very difficult. And I'm not, you know, a Dakar racer or anything. Right. So when I was doing this little test run to see how I could do, nope, by the way, there were no overlanders in Khartoum. I couldn't, nobody there. So I'm like, okay, 
maybe I can do this. So I go out there and sure enough, I go like a hundred yards fall bikes too heavy for me to get up straight. I just wait. And a couple minutes later, I'm out of nowhere. These Bedouins on camels show up and they get off their camels and get my bike up. And then I do it again. And another different set of Bedouins. Well, I, I, I did this like three or four times, but the last two times was the same Bedouin group. <laughs> and it was one, it was one camel with a guy on it and two guys walking with him. And I think I have a picture of this in my book, you know, the, the guys in my bike in the sand, but after they get me up, the one guy looks at me and I pardon the accent. It's not really the accent, yeah. <laughs> but I'll just do it. He says, Mr. Uh, uh, me think you need camel, not motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After the second, third time, they got to be like, this guy doesn't get it. Really? This isn't working. Yeah. So How many I, times are we going to save this guy? Yeah. So I turned around and, and found, you know, when that train would go. And, you know, it was, <laughs> it's a train that goes like about my motorcycle, even in the sand, I guess like eight miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, I mean, what kind of bike is this? What it's, is this it's a, a BMW? Yeah, BMW. It's a F650. Like it's in the GS range. The, okay, those are the adventure bikes, and it's the Dakar. So it has a a little larger front wheel and a more beefier rear suspension. So it's made to be able to go in some of okay. these wacky places. Well, yeah. I'm not a bike guy, so I don't know. Is this something that parts are easily accessible around the world, or and guys who can fix them? <laughs> or yeah, did you have to do? Do you have any breakdowns and things you had to like wait? for parts or wait for your bike to get fixed um yeah there were there was a there was a time i crashed the motorcycle on a bridge in bolivia by the way oh. bolivia is the place i crashed more than anyone yeah it sounds like <laughs> you should stay away from that place that yeah that beat me up um uh and when i crashed it the clutch lever broke you know you have to pull on the clutch lever it's on the left side and I was a pretty smart guy, right? That before I left on this trip, I thought, okay, what are my vulnerable parts? Let's make sure I have some oil change kits, which have the filter and the gaskets that I need. Um, you know, I could crash and brake lever or clutch lever. You know, those things can break. That happens if you if you do that. So I'd ordered the brake lever. I mean, I had them on me. You know, I had little secret hiding stash places where I put certain parts that I thought that if, if I needed. And even if I didn't know how to change it, I could find somebody, but have the part and not have that. Well, we get the, 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 the clutch lever out and I'm like looking at it and it's for a total different motorcycle. <laughs> so they had, they had sent I me, mean, even though I ordered the right one, somebody failed at the dealer that I bought it. So I had to wait around about a week in that town of San Santa Cruz de la Serra, de la Selva, uh, is Serra? Yeah. Santa Cruz de la Serra in, in, in Bolivia, which is in the Eastern part near the Amazon. Oof. And so that was that, but it's, um, it, parts aren't very easy to come by, but you know, I made sure in all of my travels that when I got to a place that would have some civilization, Santiago, Buenos Aires, Cape town, and then from Cape town, <laughs> there's nothing until Cairo, even yeah. no, no. <laughs> like so, no dealers. So I, you know, and I was always worried about tires. Right. And I've right. got that long, but I managed to find, this is a great, great travel story. So I'm in Lusaka. It's the capital of Zambia. You know, you go to Zambia to see the uh, Victoria falls. Yeah. Um, and it's just a beautiful and kind people. And I was there a few and, years ago. Yeah. I stayed on the Zimbabwe side. 
Oh, did you? So, yeah, yeah. But the falls are amazing. They are amazing. Yeah. I'm in Lusaka and somehow I I I get a referral. I think it might have been somebody I met in Cape Town who told me that there is a guy there. He's a Brit. And he um owns a cotton plantation. He has like a cotton gin or gins there. And but he likes motorcycles and he ends up becoming not because there's a big market for the brand KTM. It's an Austrian motorcycle, KTM motorcycles. So he becomes the KTM dealer in Lusaka only because he wants to buy the motorcycles and be the importer. Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't have a shop. It's his house. <laughs> right. It's his house. So I I contact this guy because I don't, you know, I don't need anything from KTM, but I I wonder if he's got tires, right? Because he's got a lot of bikes and he gets them for his friends. And sure enough, uh, I go, actually, let me back up. So it's now I didn't ask him about the tires. I, I needed fork seals. I needed to replace my fork seals, which, by the way, another part I carried. And the fork seals, the fork oil will drip out and drip down on your front brake pad. And then it makes your front brake pad ineffective. You know, it's like oil on a brake. So I need to fix these. And I also need to grind down the pads. So I call him and he's like, yeah, we've got, I've got a mechanic here. You can help me. Cause it's not something I want to do is you got to take the whole front wheels off the forks off. Yeah. I get that. But I go there and it's this huge, like six foot seven black guy with arms as big as my legs. I mean, this guy is a (laughs) machine. You know, he was, he was a machine and he, and he shows me in his little office there. It's like a little workshop. There's Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman had done this show called Long Way Down. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, they'd come by motorcycles uh, from Scotland all the way to Cape Town, kind of doing the opposite trip I did. But they had a whole film crew calling. They had, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they had their bikes repaired by the same guy. And they had a photograph (laughs) of them. There's Ewan and Charlie and their bikes at this shop I'm in. So while I'm around there, he's fixing the fork seals muscling it up and uh and i see poke around a corner i see two tires and i'm like holy shit those are the exact same tires i need so i get on the phone i text the 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 brit guy and i'm like can i buy those and he says yeah he'll sell them to me it's like and i want to have let's let's have charlie was the guy named the big guy let's have charlie put in um the rear tire i mean sorry the front tire because the front tire wears hardly, you know, it doesn't, the rear tire is the one, but I still have pretty good tread for a little while. I want to get <laughs> as much out and replace the rear tire later down the road. So I strap the rear tire to the back of the bike. I cruise off on my way to Malawi and I stop and meet a village headman. That's where I get my first dish of caterpillars. <laughs> and he guides me around the compound. You know, literally it's, they're growing cassava. They're growing, they're, fruits vegetables and um i've been uh i take lots of pictures so you know i put everything back on my bike and i get on the road back on the way to malawi and at some point i'm cruising and i'm looking in my rear view mirror which every time i looked before there was the tire i could see it jutting out from my back it's not there the tire's gone and i'm like oh no i'll never find another tire so i stop and it's a, just a very narrow two lane road. And then it's the bush, you know, it's like the jungle. I mean, it's just desolate. There's nothing there. There's no towns. <laughs> so I think, well, maybe it's on the side of the road somewhere or in the road. So I ride almost all the way back to where the village headman is stopping and asking people along the way, did you see this tire? 
no. Then after doing all that running around looking for the tire, my reserve light tells me I'm almost out of gas pops on. And I'm like, there's no gas stations. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, no, nowhere. There's like one little town. <laughs> so I go to that town and nobody there speaks English, but I point, you know, sign language. I point to the gas tank and they say, wait. And some little kid goes running off. And then all I mean, and next thing I'm surrounded by right. 50, 50 people in this village. They're all looking at me. I'm very weird looking. Mm-hmm. And there's all these round rondolas that where everybody else lives. And eventually this little kid comes back with a bigger guy and he guides me back. So I ride the motorcycle down a little track and there's one of these thatched huts, the rondolas. And behind it is a 55 gallon drum. <laughs> full of gas like right outside their bedroom yeah you know? and they have a little you know a little uh container that's like a liter mm-hmm. and they they pump you know it's a manual pump they pump in a liter pour it in the bike and they count how many liters i'm getting one two <laughs> each time so they know how much to charge me right this, right right so i i i get the you know 12 liters or whatever it is pay them the money and 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 get to there uh get to malawi where I connect with another rider I had met down in Namibia, but never found the tire, <laughs> never found the tire. And then two months later, I'm in Rwanda getting ready to go see those beautiful gorillas. And I get on my laptop and there's an email in the subject line, which catches me. And it says your tire and it's spelled T Y R E. You know, the British Old English style. Yeah. Yeah. So I clicked the email and it's somebody in Zambia says he's a missionary, you know, a, a British guy and, a, you know, Christian mm-hmm. mission. And he says, I found your tire. What What do you want us to do with it? <laughs> I'm like, well, <laughs> first of all, how did he find me? Yeah. Right. That's- I mean, how did he know? I mean, I didn't. And, and I and to, to this day, I still don't know, except maybe the village headman I had given because I had his email written down and okay. his phone number in my book. And I it must have I, been that guy. He, it, right. But the thing is, I never <laughs> I never even got to him to tell him I lost it. Uh, so, so 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 you imagine the communication that happens between these communities. Hey, we found this tire. You know, dude, probably dude. fell off in front of the headman's house. <laughs> and people are like, what hey, whose tire is that? He said, Oh, some crazy white guy came here. Here's his email. He's <laughs> like, hey, do you want this tire back? That's a great story. But it took two months, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll get around it. We'll get around to emailing them. Yeah. That's so yeah, that, that it is. It's 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 classes. So what I did is I I got a hold of the um the the Brit with the KTM dealership with Charlie's boss, <laughs> and they they uh, he got the tire uh, back to him, and then he shipped it to me, and I picked it up in Cairo. That's so, great. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, we got a couple of minutes left. I want you to uh, first of all tell your um. Give us your websites and social okay. media and where we can find you. Yeah, all everything's at World Rider. So I'm on Instagram at World Rider and I'm worldrider.com. Oh, lots of I've been blogging and writing in there. And I'm a World Rider on YouTube. I've got a great YouTube channel and it's got uh, um, some very interesting uh, video footage. I've been putting a lot of effort into it in the pandemic. I was like trying to make use of all this crazy video that I never thought would really come into anything. <laughs> so it's there. Um, I'm on um, uh, world rider underscore on TikTok. Uh, I got um, yeah all the social channels world rider on Facebook. Find me. And um, 
it's 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 good stuff. And if you go and subscribe to any of those or follow me on Instagram, uh, I will be traveling this summer. So there'll show, there'll be new. I hate the word content. Doesn't it's like no, I know okay. there'll be new cool photos and videos. things, new cool yes. stuff. It's gonna well, be cool yeah. stuff. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to meet and finally catch up. It was uh, yeah. it's great. And finally, well, I'm going to ask what I always ask people in the last minute here. Uh, what has all this travel taught you about people and yourself? And what have you learned? What have you learned? I've learned that one thing that it's important to recognize people, no matter who they are, and encourage them. Um, because that's nothing more uh, rewarding for somebody to be recognized, to, to recognize they are astounding, you know, the, how astounding they are. Because because I, I believe that if we see people as, you know, we're all the same. We all want the same. We want to be happy. We want good lives for our kids. If we have kids, we want, you know, to be healthy. We share everything in common. And, and I, and I will say that just everyone is astounding in their own way. And the second thing is I realized that the people that have so little, you know, this, this is nothing new, but it's still, when you get it slapped in your face, you just hammer at home when people that have so little are willing to give so much and the kindness of strangers, you know, especially as a solo traveler, um, people go out of their way to do things for you and, you know, but re repay them by encouraging them, respecting them and their astoundingness, I guess. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful That's world, but yeah, and, and people that have so much, sometimes all they're worried about is losing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's true. Well, thank you for, again for doing this, and uh, great to meet you. And I'm I'm glad you could sit down for a minute. Yeah, this was fun. It was awesome. All right, Alan Carl, everybody. Yeah.